Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with 3CR and Annie. And like I said, as I threatened, we're going to hear about Marx. And we're going to hear about Marx from Ros Ward. So let's proceed. Marx and Engels, in the Communist Manifesto, famously wrote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. struggle. <laughs> Miss? I thought we could get that. <laughs> So Marx didn't really believe that history is about the stories of great men, or women, which creates somewhat of a paradox in any attempt to write or talk about the importance of his life as a great man. Although, of course, many books have been written about Marx, his life and work. A few of the titles of these books include Marx, Man and Fighter, Marx Without Myth, Karl Marx and Prophetic Politics, Marx's Attempt to Leave Philosophy, the postmodern Marx, and one I haven't read yet, but I am curious about, was Karl Marx a Satanist? Yes. Probably. Decisively. I think decisively, yes. It's a short book. So you can find all sorts of things written about Marx, his drinking habits, what cigars he smoked, what kind of a husband and father he was, what kind of a friend, the many faces of Karl Marx, what kind of relationship he had with his mother... And, of course, his beard. Very important questions, no doubt. And I will say just a couple of things about Marx's personal life before I get into what I really want to talk about. Because Marx was always ruthless. He did not suffer fools gladly, which is a phrase uh, that was used in my Year 5 school report my teacher said about me. (laughs) Not that I'm comparing myself to Marx. (laughs) A lot of people have said that about him. And, you know. <laughs> he was respected by his political allies and his adversaries. At home, he was playful and affectionate. He loved reciting Shakespeare and created long original stories for his daughters who he encouraged to read, to learn languages and to be as independent as they could for the times. He worked closely uh, with his wife, Jenny, who is sometimes described as his secretary or discussed mainly for her beauty or her social standing which I think does a disservice to her role as an editor and collaborator in Marx's thought and writings. One Prussian government spy who visited Marx at his home in 1852 was apparently surprised because of his reputation to find Marx to be the gentlest and mildest of men. And you may be familiar, if you've read any kind of Marx biography, with the standard, it's so ironic that Marx, who was the author of Capital, was really shit with money. He wasted his money, etc., etc. But actually, there's new evidence to suggest that Marx had less money to waste than historians have assumed. And it was quite clear, actually, that Marx accepted that most of his life would be lived in poverty as the price of his politics. Marx and his family lived in exile as political refugees, you would call them now, for almost all of their lives. Three of his children died young and a fourth was stillborn. Even with the help of his generous life partner, Engels, it sounds sort of lesbian, uh, the Marx family did not have a cushy life. 
And I think a recent, art, well, a fairly recent article in The Nation by someone called Benjamin Kunkel had a really great quote about Marx's life in general. Amid trying and precarious circumstances, he combined philosophical penetration, literary and journalistic gifts, and a revolutionary commitment to a singular degree. So what I want to do is to look more closely at the aspect of Marx's life which is typically underemphasized, what he would call himself his practical activities. <coughs> Two tendencies have worked, I think, to depoliticize the life and work of Marx. Firstly, there's a tendency to elevate Marx, or delegate, depending on your perspective, to the realm of pure theory and philosophy, to a place where you can just find sanctuary in the academy and debate at that level of pure ideas and philosophy. Then there's a second tendency of those who have dogmatically followed what they think is the correct Marxist line, as with, of course, you know, Stalinists and all forms of other uh, orthodoxies like that. Recently, China honoured the 200th anniversary of Marx like we are tonight in a quite different way and with a lot more sort of lavish uh, involvement than we've got for you tonight, <laughs> with a lot more money spent on it, um, where President Xi Jinping heralded Marx as the greatest thinker of modern times and told all Communist Party members to read Marx and adopt his theories as a way of life. No doubt a way of life specifically outlined by the Communist Party of China. So then it's understandable why many reject that kind of dogmatism and then often end up back in the first tendency of just thinking about Marx in those purely historical and philosophical terms. Or at that point say, Marx is not really worth anything and you end up with kind of postmodernist thought or post-Marxist thought and so on. And instead of either of those two things, I want to propose that there is an alternative, that you can understand Marx and in fact, you can only really understand Marx if you understand him as a political activist, as a lifelong fighter for democracy, for the working class, and for the oppressed. In the third thesis on Feuerbach, written in 1845, Marx argues that it is essential to educate the educator himself. The coincidence of the changing of circumstances and of human activity, or self-changing, can be conceived and rationally understood only as revolutionary practice. So I want to talk a bit about Marx's revolutionary practice, his political life, because I think that's how you can best understand what to do with Marx's ideas today and why it is that 200 years later, his life and legacy still matter so much if you want to change the world. And for this, I'm going to use three examples. The first international, the struggle for Irish independence, and the Paris Commune. If I had more time, I could make the same argument by talking about the 1848 revolutions, the founding of the Communist League, the drafting of the Communist Manifesto, or Marx's work as a journalist, which I will say a couple of things, seeing as we have a journalist, or sorry, a public intellectual on the Thanks. panel tonight. <laughs> in the 1840s, Marx edited and contributed to political newspapers in Europe, and from 1852 to 1862, he wrote a regular column for the New York Daily Tribune which at that time had the largest circulation of any paper in the world, of around 200,000. This journalistic work was polemic and necessarily had to engage with current events, with political theory, and most importantly, with struggle. Marx's work in, in his uh, role as a journalist was censored, banned, and derided. And none of this stopped him. Writing for Marx was very much part of the development of his thought, 
and never isolated from the realities of the world. So to the first international, which Engels described in his uh, speech in the eulogy, as we've just heard, as crowning all of Marx's achievements. A lot of the recent articles about Marx on his anniversary have talked about Capital as Marx's great contribution, the book Capital. But without the work in the international concurrently that he was, uh, right, that he was involved in as he was writing Capital, most people agree that it would be a very different uh, book, a very different text. And it was only when he was working within the international that he finally actually finished writing Capital because it sort of all kind of came together with that practical activity. <coughs> So it was in 1864, in September, when a meeting of 2,000 people in London formed the new International Working Men's Association. The hall was uh, so packed that people couldn't fit in. 2,000 people attended this meeting with representatives from Britain, uh, from Paris, from France, and a bunch of other countries. And initially, 23 British trade unions representing 25,000 members uh, were part of the first international. The international aspired to forge a resistance to capital that would be as global as capitalism itself. One writer described it as a united nations of radical citizens. One of the stories of Marx's involvement in the international goes that <clears throat> he was not really happy with the first draft that somebody else had done of the rules and principles. He wasn't at the meeting where they drafted it, so they had another committee meeting where he invited people to his house uh, to do a new draft of the rules and principles, where he kept them talking for hours and hours about lots of small things, apparently, until like one or two in the morning, when they all sort of gave up uh, debating these minor points, went to bed or left, and after they'd all left or gone to sleep, he finishes off writing uh, what would become the Address to the Working Classes, a ten-page document that basically made history and formed the basis of that new movement. And in the preamble to the rules of the international, Marx stated his revolutionary democratic vision of how socialism would be achieved. He wrote, the emancipation of the working classes must be conquered by the working classes themselves. And quickly spreading around the world, this document, only a few weeks later, would be read aloud by... Uh, leaders in the Union Army in the Civil War in America as their troops were about to face uh, the Confederate troops. From the beginning, Marx personally drafted nearly every major statement of position and principles in the international, and it meant that he spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months and years corresponding with unions and members across Europe. At this point, his daughter, Jenny Chen, who spoke multiple languages, was his assistant, and his other daughter, Laura, was one of his key researchers who also spoke, spoke multiple languages. And the international changed the entire character of the workers' movement. It was the most powerful means that ever existed in Marx's lifetime for the transmission of ideas, of socialist revolution, to the developing working-class movements of the world. And its membership ended up in the hundreds of thousands of affiliates across the world, from Germany to Australia to South Africa to New Zealand, all around the world people, for the first time, developed a real practical solidarity between workers. They stopped the foreign importation of, of scabs across borders, so the 1866 tailors' strike, the 1867 bronze workers' strike, the 1868 Geneva building trade strike, the Belgian miners' result in 1868... All of these strikes were 
uh, strikes where Marx was practically involved, coordinating strike support, writing leaflets, and even apparently signing membership cards for the International. And it was also in his work through the International that Marx demonstrated his practical support uh, for women in politics. He first suggested that Engels' partner, the Irish nationalist Lizzie Burns, become a member from the beginning of the International, and later he backed Harriet Law to join the General Council uh, when there were some debates about whether a woman could do that, uh, could perform that role. And from that point on, all of Marx's addresses and declarations to the International addressed working men and working women. In 1869, Marx proposed that the female president of the Leon Silk Workers' Union be given special credentials to attend the Congress, even though she wasn't an official delegate. And he later advocated for women-only unions to be set up, not because he thought there shouldn't be mixed branches of the unions, but as a way of trying to uh, engage with the growing number of women who are in, in the industrial uh, workforce. So for the question of Irish independence which really came to a head in 1867, around the same time as the International was getting started, um, <clears throat> a group of Irish nationalists who were in a secret uh, Fenian society were arrested when they were um, carrying out an armed attack to free their imprisoned comrades. And this launched a campaign to stop their execution. They were basically uh, going to be executed by the English state. And Marx thought this is a time that the international can step in and support Irish independence. And he had a, it, it really developed his political uh, thought on the question of um, self-determination. He wrote, to hasten the social revolution in England the most, is the most important object of the international. The sole means of doing so is to make Ireland independent. The special task of the general council is to waken the consciousness of the working class to the notion that for them, the national emancipation of Ireland is not a question of abstract justice or humanitarian sentiment, but the first condition of their own social emancipation. Marx argued that it was necessary to end English workers' antagonism towards Irish workers in order to have any chance of winning their struggle against the English ruling classes. He wrote, now just while I read this quote from Marx, like think about racism today uh, while you hear this because it's basically exactly the same. This antagonism is kept artificially alive and intensified by the press, the pulpit, maybe we'll replace that with social media or something, <laughs> the comic papers, in short, by all the means at the disposal of the ruling classes. This antagonism is the secret of the impotence of the English working class, despite its organisation. It is the secret of the maintenance of power by the capitalist class, and the latter is fully aware of this. That idea that the ruling class divide and rule was very much part of that question of Irish independence. But supporting Irish independence was a very controversial thing for Marx uh, to do, and it <coughs> proved um, too much for some people in the international. Uh, some of the more uh, reformist trade union leaders, like one of the British leaders, George Odker, who, had, who sort of stepped back from the international on the question of Ireland. But as a result <coughs> of all of Marx's um, pushing and agitating, they did end up uh, playing a pretty crucial role and, and a demonstration that they ended up calling a couple of years later for full amnesty of all Irish political prisoners attracted 100,000 people in London. And Marx and his whole family, of course, attended and he commented afterwards that the main feature of the demonstration was at least in part um, the English working class 
I mean, some of the 100,000 people that were there had shed their prejudice against the Irish, which was a big step forward. So just finally, quickly on the Paris Commune. <laughs> Until 1871, the idea of workers' self-emancipation seemed pretty abstract. And it was only when the workers of Paris rose in the world's first truly uh, workers' revolution and formed the Paris Commune that Marx could see this now in practice. And though it lasted just 72 days before being violently crushed, the Commune, as Marx noted in the Civil War in France, saw the proletariat for the first time hold political power. The political form at last discovered under which to work out the economical emancipation of labour. So he was very interested and wanted to know all about what was happening in the Paris Commune. A workers' government for the first time formed that made tentative steps to working out their own self-emancipation. For example, rents owing to landlords in the period of the siege were cancelled, the long-standing demand of the bakers for night work was abolished, uh, to be abolished was granted, factories and workshops abandoned by their owners were seized by the trade unions and the cooperatives and run by workers themselves. And just five days after the Paris Commune ended, and order, so-called, was restored in Paris, Marx produced a 35-page pamphlet, pamphlet called The Civil War in France on behalf of the international. No work until that point written by Marx was so quickly and widely read. Marx's thought finally reached the masses. It was translated into most European languages, went through three editions in two months, more than your book, uh, and on the top of the handbill... <laughs> On the top of the handbill for the English edition was written in big, bold capital letters, this ought to be read by every English workman. So to conclude, just three things. <clears throat> One, Marx tried at every step of the way to understand the world as it is and as it has been historically. He did not spend his time in abstract or utopian philosophical fantasies, or give any ground to the kind of illusions that the capitalists want us to believe that we're still meant to believe today. Things like progress in society is inevitable, or that education or ideas will change the world alone. Second, that beyond trying to understand the world, you have to be part of that world. It was only when Marx engaged with people in struggle, whether in the international, the Paris Commune, or, or even the early years, where Engels helped him understand the actual lives and the conditions of the English working class, that he then had major breakthroughs in his thought and his theory and his writing. And thirdly, that you have to fight for your position. It may seem very different to us here in Melbourne, 200 years on, to think about what it's like fighting today compared to Victorian London. But I would argue that it's no less important, and I, don't, I think Marx would argue the same thing. Marx recognised that once you understand that capitalism as a system can and does destroy humanity, like we've seen with the tragic case of the refugee that um, Jess was talking about right when we started, he said that we all are then in a situation which makes all turning back impossible. Marx knew that, I know that, people in this room know that. And I think his life and his commitment to politics and his practical activities uh, really serve as a lesson to us all. <clears throat> this is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au.
Tadaimi. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka, gets up one talks. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we've just been listening to Ros Ward on Marx on this very important anniversary year. And we're going to now move on to the poetry launch, the poetry book launch of Elisa Belair's uh, poetry. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Aboriginal Country and uh, it's got the report I put together is... Uh, starts off with uh, the beginning of an interview that was done with Lisa Belair in 1992 by Women on the Line. Lisa was a broadcaster at 3CR and uh, uh, an honoured person uh, in our uh, community. So let's begin. Just because, you know, you were adopted and fostered, and you were brought up by white people and, you know, you might have gone to private school, you might have even had a pony. These are some of the stereotypes. And you might even learn to ski. That's another stereotype. Destiny says blacks don't ski. OK, I put my hand up, but I was adopted, you know, and I'm starting to feel ashamed about that. But there's still that pain that, that you, you go through. I mean, nothing that all these material things cannot make up for the, the loss of not being brought up with your family. And when I met up with my, you know, some more of my relations like that, I've got, I've got hundreds of relations, but I've got family right around Australia too. That's white family and that's my Indigenous family because there's some, you know, white people that look out for me for me too. Uh, I just cried. I just couldn't deal with it. I just looked looked around, you know, all this, all this family and I just, for that split second, I know I shouldn't have, but I couldn't help it. I just kept thinking, I missed out on this. Lisa Belair is one of the stolen generations of Aboriginal children and today on Women on the Line, she tells her story. Hello, I'm Ruth Barney. Lisa was one of the contributors to Breaking Through, Women, Work and Careers, edited by Jocelyn Scott. In Breaking Through, Lisa writes, Since the invasion, one in six Aboriginal children has been removed from their natural family. I was one of those victims. Because of the support and love of some close friends who are more like family... I can now call myself a survivor. Adopted as a baby by a white family in 1961, Lisa grew up not knowing that she was Aboriginal. Later, on the pretext of getting a better education, she was sent to boarding school. The real reason, says Lisa, is that she was being sexually abused by her adoptive father. Incredibly, Lisa has overcome these odds to speak out about and work for the rights of Indigenous people in Australia. As a teenager, Lisa says she was inspired by then-Senator Susan Ryan and her outspokenness on women, Aboriginals and education. She says, I told myself if I stuck at school, attended university, I would be able to work for Susan Ryan in Canberra. Today, Lisa works as the Aboriginal Liaison Officer at Melbourne University and broadcasts on 3CR and 3LO in Melbourne. She's been active in Aboriginal theatre and education and did a stint as a counsellor for Collingwood Council. This is Lisa's story. My mum came down from the north coast of New South Wales, oh, probably 1960, around about then, came down to Melbourne, um, to Carlton. Actually, she had a job at the uh, Postmaster General, uh, PMG, as it used to be called, the old uh, yeah, post office, uh, which was also very unusual for a Koori woman, well, a Koori person to actually have a a government job back in those days 
And she met my, my dad. I mean, the story's a bit hazy there. And at the time, uh, because she worked, I was in Berry Street Babies Home, East, East Melbourne. And uh, I guess some of the, the listeners would be aware then, but, you know, back in the 1960s, could even be before then, uh, you actually paid to have your child minded in Berry Street as opposed to its role now. But in addition to the payment, you signed a document which said that if payment fell in arrears by four weeks, then automatically you became a ward of the state. Now, what happened, my mum um, got really sick. She went home to Lismore in New South Wales. And again, you know, we've got to look at the big picture. And during the 1960s, I was born in 1961, but preceding that, where um, the, the federal government and the state government had, a, had a, an official policy of, of assimilation, okay, assimilation which spelt out uh, in, in quite detail uh, that Aboriginal people were to become Australian citizens. Here we are talking about assimilation and we didn't even receive citizenship till 1967. I guess there's a bit of irony in there. So that uh, you had government instrumentalities, for example, for, for the police that would go into to Aboriginal people's homes and, and take children. You had the social work workers who played an active role. And you also had things uh, like with, with my circumstances, how my mum got, got sick, she went home and when she was in hospital, of course, she, she didn't receive medical care with everybody else because she was a Koori, so she was treated uh, in the basement of the hospital and uh, you know we, I don't know the type of care that she she, she received uh, she wrote a will saying I was to go to my grandmother and she died but before she died a letter got sent to her saying well this, this will isn't recognised because it wasn't signed by a justice of the peace uh, so you know and, and in order for me to go home uh, they'd need we need two airfares and adequate winter clothing so that if, you know, my grandmother, who was raising eight other children, had money for two airfares, then there was adequate uh, winter clothing. And, you know, good question, Ruth, what does adequate winter clothing mean? So it was sort of like, uh, I look at the big picture. It's important to do that in order to, 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 to try and make sense of what's gone on in this country. And years ago, like, I couldn't even... I couldn't even talk about what we're talking about. Like, I, 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 I do cry. Like, sometimes I, I, I'll, I'll be in my room or I'll be walking around the streets because I still don't drive it and have my, have my Ray-Bans on. And you just think about things. You don't necessarily think about you. The only time that I really consciously sort of think about, you know, because you can't be thinking, well, gosh, what, what, what if we didn't have assimilation? You know, what if, what if white people didn't invade our country? You know, what if this was a, a, a sexist, free, racist, free society? You know, what if, I mean, all I know is what, what I've gone through. All I know is how I've reacted to that, how angry that, that I have been in, in, in my life when I was younger. I didn't do things like slash myself I didn't do things like some queries would do and that's you know put acid on their skin to make themselves white or they'd get stilo wool and scrub their skin you know this is all this is all stuff that's happened to queries to Aboriginal people to Torres Strait Islanders that have been you know taken away fostered adopted put in orphanages it was all supposed to make us good citizens of of this country, you know, um, you know, one, one, one nation. And 
not everyone can 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 speak out on 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 these issues and it's very painful for me but it's something that i have an obligation to australian society you know to at least say to people out there look please listen please try and understand it's no good saying i wasn't here in 1788 but look around what's gone on in, in more recent history look what's gone gone on you know in the 1930s the 1950s the 1960s and we're here in the 1990s i think everyone wants to be proud of this country but in order to be to be proud of, of whatever it means to be Australian we've got to acknowledge what's gone on to the indigenous community well this is supposed to be reconciliation um a couple of weeks ago I took a class at La Trobe University Bandura and I actually had to go and um look up a dictionary it was Macquarie's dictionary and I looked up uh, reconciliation and and when I looked at it I thought oh why not really like that um and then i looked at, at reconcile and i and i and i and i looked at that and i thought oh what i really like that either um but i thought no i'm not going to think of another term at this point in my by my career rather than uh, i think reconciliation uh, if you do open a macquarie dictionary or another dictionary uh, have a look at it and think uh, maybe from your perspective and you think well maybe from a, another perspective of of someone that doesn't have a say and then ask yourself Oh, this word reconciliation is it a good word or not a bridge to reconcile i walked across a bridge once a bridge for reconciliation gr felt good decorated with a united flag badge australian and, and aborigine gosh i felt proud had my image captured next to a smiling reconciled aborigine well that's what the byline said i walked across a bridge once and kept walking dedicated to all those people who walked once for reconciliation especially uh, during 2000 shame to all of you who have uh, never walked marched with us again shame on you who walked once and don't come along to the national sorry day celebration so can you tell me about the uh journey of uh, getting this anthology together. Yes, so um of course Lisa Belair was an amazing poet and um a huge figure in her own community um in Melbourne and nationally and to some degree internationally. Um her work was on Poetry International web and I um really loved it and I used to read sometimes with her read at, at La Mama with her one time at reconciliation readings and um another time presented her as a poet in the Overload Poetry Festival um and she never had a car so she lived in Brunswick and um drove her to the gig you know uh in St Kilda and back and we started yarning away and um I used to follow what she did I I loved the dirty mile which was um in my view the best piece of street theater I've ever seen that came from one of her ideas and Elbejiri Theatre Company did it and put it together it was uh co-written by uh, Johnny Harding and uh Kylie Belling and 
they did a magnificent job. So I remember buying a ticket off Lisa to, to go on that and um, walking around the streets of Carlton and down um, Gertrude Street and around these streets of Fitzroy, the, the suburb we're in for the book launch tonight. Um, and so much Koori uh, history here, but um, I loved the way that she presented her work, you know, larger than life. She brought her social worker background to it uh, and her theatre background. So she was a very theatrical writer and performer who would create characters and inhabit them. I guess she might have come across some characters a little bit like that. Yeah, I was pretty shocked like everybody when Lisa passed away and... Um, went to her enormous funeral um, at the Aboriginal Advancement League. There was about a thousand people there. There were people from the Labor Party, feminists. Um, there were football people, fans. She was a Collingwood fan, I believe, um, and she certainly loved a, a kick. And um, just all these different walks of life, teaching. Um, yeah, the left-wing um, activists, lesbians, uh, so many different groups that she'd bonded with and worked with that turned out in full. And when they took her coffin away, there was, like, a huge ovation, you know, from the crowd. It was amazing. Um, so I um, spoke to The Age about writing an obituary for her um, on... Uh, keen on writing obituaries for people that I think sometimes don't get the recognition in, you know, public that they should. So I did that and uh, started a journey and over time I I felt that she'd only had one book out despite, you know, achieving this quality. She was partway through her uh, PhD at La Trobe University and that's been granted her to her posthumously too. And her PhD supervisor wrote the um, about the poet in the book, which is called Aboriginal Country. Uh, so it's a good size anthology of her work. Uh, some would be familiar to people that they would have heard before. Others have only been performed live or recorded on the Heart to Heart CD that 3CR were involved in because um, she was a real stalwart 3CR, not another Koori show co-founder and presenter uh, over a long period of time and she was still doing that when she suddenly passed in her sleep at um, 45 years of age which uh, you know, they never found a cause for her death, they they uh, found that her heart was enlarged but wasn't seen to be the cause of death so it was mysterious um, and yeah she was in a prime um, highly recognised and celebrated community photographer or you know, everywhere she went her PhD was around the subject of inclusion of uh, indigenous people and um, in photography and she would always ask permission to take photos, um, give people copies of photos, get them to take a photo of her 
and uh, break the ice that way. So. He's a real groundbreaker. Yeah, definitely, in many ways. Very fierce, brave person that encountered a lot of racism in her life. And I just, I love her work. I, I wanted to see it remembered. And, you know, as the years passed, it's now 12 years since she passed. Uh, and I started to work on the, on the book idea, and then it kind of found it. It got really difficult. You went searching, didn't you? You've yeah, been searching I did. for yeah, eleven years. I did. Yeah, I I, uh, I got permission to go through her archives in the uh, Koori Heritage Trust. Um, worked with her literary executor, who's a fellow adoptee, John Stewart, her brother, um, and I spoke to. Um, friends including Gary Foley about the situation um, and I was in touch with Sol Belair who's her mother's brother um, and he was helping with permissions uh, as was Kay Belair the um, widow of Bob Belair uh, who again was her brother um, her mother's brother so her direct two uncles and her aunt by marriage there uh, were fantastic supports um, yeah, it's um, it's been a long journey, but um, any profits will be do- donated to the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. So um, I'm just hoping people enjoy the poetry, and uh, it's available through online ordering uh, at the University of Western Australia Publishing online. It's called Aboriginal Country by Lisa Belair. Excited. Um, this, it's actually hard for me to think of the last time I was excited about a book launch, even though I've never met her, but she was a poet that immediately you read it, and I just felt like I wanted to meet her, and I felt like um, I could have a really good chat to her. Um, and I, I grew up in Papua New Guinea, and for a long time I've been trying to write about whiteness and, I, and race and colonialism and that kind of stuff, and I I've just always got really stuck, and somehow reading her book um, kind of gave me permission somehow to start writing about it in a, in a way that I don't know if it works, but um, I kind of feel like she just said, get on with it, <laughs> um, and I started to write. I wrote a poem, uh, this is inspired by Jiaochi, uh, and Heart to Heart. Uh, from, from you to me, to you from me, it's a start, heart to heart. Could the dream of sovereignty become reality, heart to heart? could be a start, you and me, understanding sovereignty. Heart to heart, listen, could be a start, heart to heart. Natural of Jiaochi there. Stay over there, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And before I I call Jen Jewell Brown, who was the um, editor of this book, uh, over to the microphone, uh, I'd like to tell you about the the one and only time that uh, that I met Lisa, and it would have been um, would have been about two thousand and three, two thousand and four, I suppose. I went to uh, I went to La Mama Theatre um, to uh, to listen to um, to her poetry, and I didn't know who Lisa was. I, I just uh, I, I I just went there because it was the La Mama Theatre. And she happened to be uh, be reading there, and I went uh, I went to the one in, over in Faraday Street, the one that's uh, just burnt down. And there was probably about five or six people standing outside a locked gate, um, and it was about five minutes before the due time. And uh, so, someone uh, someone had a mobile phone, and they made a call, and they, and they said, "Oh, it's uh, it's it's at the new um, theatre around the corner at the courthouse." And uh, none of us knew about this, so uh, we got directions, 
And uh, so we all started walking uh, towards the uh, to the Lamama Courthouse Theatre, and um, I, uh, I I got in uh, speaking with uh, with with a with a, an Aboriginal woman who was uh, who who introduced herself as Lisa, and um, and it would have only been would have we would have been about three quarters of the way there before she actually said that she was the feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, and, and uh, it it was yeah it was was quite quite incredible. I, I, I'd only been speaking her, with her for about five, maybe ten minutes at the most, and um, and felt like we'd been friends forever. Uh, she was she was that kind of person, and when um, when 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 she uh, when she did her feature um, at, uh, at at the theatre uh, at the courthouse theatre, uh, it was it was as though I could I, I could have been sitting next to her at the bar or sitting across the table in a kitchen or something, and and she'd just be and, and she's just talking and just saying these wonderful wonderful stories, and and that that really make you uh, feel like um, you're in a very, very small room with her, um, not, not a giant theatre. She made a very, very big place a really, really small one, and I'm pretty sure that she made everyone else in that um, room feel that way too. Um, beautiful, beautiful human being. Uh, my sister's apron, and this was inspired by a photograph, I would think taken in the early 1900s down at uh, Lake Tyres. I think this uh, image has been identified at the Lake Tyres uh, Aboriginal Mission, and uh, a photograph of yeah, four Aboriginal women wearing aprons. Well, three of them had aprons on. My sister's apron. We ran about in pairs. Hey, the four of us. From that white fellow missionary, always mixing me and my cousins up, and sometimes we teased him real good. Tuesday we wash our aprons, because on Wednesday the government photographer is coming. I can't be bothered with all the fuss, not like my aunties, all excited. All us girls have to dress proper. We are representing our race. Too much politic, politic for me. Stand in line, no touching, sounds like the missionary's wife bossing us around. That's my cousin, my younger sister. She's the one without the apron on. The apron, the apron. Too late, we are scolded. Our images are now immortalised. I think of my sister's apron and laugh about the trouble she will be in. (laughs) Thank you for the privilege of being able to be here tonight and to read some of Lisa's poems. I went um, radio training at 3CR in late 89 and at the time on air was not another curious show with Lisa Belair. So she was somebody that was in the studios at the time that I went there and my other daughter Rebecca used to love coming along to 3CR because she'd spend her time talking to all the curie guys that ran her show and hearing their stories. And yeah, later on we were to discover how much um, curry that Rebecca had in her, which is a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more. And little did I know when I met Lisa and saw her around 3CR that in 1988, 1999, sometime around there, that we would be on the same bill down Smith Street at the pub there and it was my first feature in a group of people and she was 
one of the older hands along with Peter Bukowski and Norman Turrell. And at the end of the night, she complimented me on my father's poem, and I've never felt so sort of chuffed. So I wrote that poem for myself, not for really for public consumption, but I like it anyway. And for someone to give me really lovely feedback, I was very much warm to Lisa Fan. Yeah, to be a very approachable, lovely, warm person. And the last time I saw her was at my mum at Heaton, the one that's put down. And we're out in the courtyard, chatting where you launched somebody's book that day. I've forgotten whose book it was, but Lisa and I were out the, in the courtyard chattering, and our cho- my children and other people's children, somebody climbed right up to the top story of um, my mother had just sat on the roof and she said, oh, should we call welfare now? <laughs> so she had this deadly sense of, sense of humour, which yeah, I take away and remember, and I'll get straight into the poetry now. And this first poem was in her first book, but it's also included in this book, and I think it's a pretty significant poem, actually. It's called A Suitcase Full of Mould. Imagine alienation. Imagine a bonding process of 23 years of lies, of 23 years of guilt, of being estranged, of trying to let go, of wanting to... But imagine being 12, of being home and sick, and have someone who you trust, or someone who you think you trust. Imagine not being able to tell, of wanting to, but you have to no one to tell. Hey, where are all the social workers when you need them or when you think you do? Imagine being 13, coming home from boarding school to care for a person called Mum who has once again collapsed too much booze, too much mental torture, too much, too much, too much. Try being 14 and look out your lounge room window, it's dark now, but someone who you love or someone who you think you love is gardening. Imagine gardening at 9pm. What is her fascination with the gladi eyewells, the daffodils, those beautiful pink, blue and purple petunias? Oh, that's right. There are beer cans strategically placed in different sections of our beautiful, beautifully manicured flower beds. They say flowers grow for beauty. No, not for me. Flowers grow to hide the inability to cope. Too much, too much, too much. Forget, forget, forget. As much as I try, I cannot. There must be some reason, some reason. Why so many, so many? Curies. Noongars, Murrays, Nangars go through the nightmare. Why? 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 I don't know why. All I know is here I am at 23, 24, 26, 36, and 46 if I live that long. I'm wondering, searching, questioning. I don't know why. Should it matter? I'm one of the lucky ones. A suitcase full of mould contains those few precious memories of my years without my people. The photos, the children books, a painting of a lighthouse I drew at 12. Short, sharp memories, a collection of my life which 
if I could have a child, if I wanted to, I would give to them. Hey, tell us about your life growing up. A suitcase full of mould is my childhood. A suitcase full of mould. A suitcase full of mould. Uh, this poem never again. Torn from country, language and love. Anger, anger accumulated 216 years plus of colonisation. Identity fragmented, identity forlorn. A shallow, shattered, saddened shadow. Who to blame, who to forgive. Reaching towards a new tomorrow. Crying, lying, slowly dying. To grieve, to leave. Create an imagined happy past. But the lies and the cries beg for justice. The night grows dark as we wait and wait. The fire sacred dance to begin. Will our people be free? Will we start to dream in colour with laughing spirits? Never again to be torn from our mother earth. Never again to be wronged and robbed. Never again, never again. You're listening to 3CR, 855am, the voice of the community. G'day, Kevin. How are you? Morning, Annie. How are you? We, I recorded this yesterday, but obviously that was rehearsal because it's disappeared into the ether somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's radio. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. OK, here we go. The week that was a week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when we contemplated the real meaning of the word joint. As the media, including this segment, celebrates True Blue Aussie's mission for world peace via our Pine Gap joint facility with the US of the UN of the US of the world in bombing the proverbial out of evil Iran because US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor knows you can't trust anyone who sticks to a deal. You don't amass fortunes sticking to deals. They will pay with the greatest firepower the world has ever known. Ever, ever. Fantastic. Uh, so you plan to bomb evil Iran? We'll see. We'll see. The positive is, within a week or 3,000 tweets later, whichever comes first, Iran could be Donald's new very, very close friend. Although, given the one supporter cheering and waving their joint flags behind the Holocaust goalposts end of the ground, is Zion Big Supremo Benjamin not another Yahoo coaching Donald? The US of Merchants of Death can feel pretty secure their merchandise is in for a workout. But the real meaning of joint... Joint facility means we provide the joint, and that's it. That's our joint role. Fortunately, we can look forward to balanced objective coverage of all that now that the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Falfax is also no longer Falfax. And we can expect Channel None of its true in-depth reporting and analysis to bring the real big news to its newly acquired mastheads, an octogenarian hitting the wrong pedal and smashing through a pizza joint window, onlookers expressing their shock. I heard this crash. I I thought it was a bomb. I I couldn't believe it. Or a break-in and bashing in some quiet suburban street. It's terrible. You, You don't expect this sort of thing in this sort of street. A young driver ramming a stolen car into a car, sorry, police car. Speculation the youth must have been a member of an African gang. Should Carlton Games finish at half-time under the mercy rule? All the big news. So there's every chance we wouldn't even need to know there was a war taking place. 
although there'd be a temptation to boast of True Blue Aussie's invaluable assistance to our great, very, very, very close friend through our joint facility. And if we thought the small L liberal facade of the Spencer Street Fairfax was more insidiously dangerous than Lord Rupert of Wapping's blatant bias, watch this space. Despite claims the practice has stopped, notice Melbourne City Council is seizing the few poultry belongings of the city's homeless and destroying them. A foolproof policy to eliminate homelessness as a few nights in the rock-hard gutter among the towering blocks and cranes filling the skyline with nothing to reduce the freezing should prompt them to get off their bums and seek a bit of useful employment, allowing them to start anew. I raise this because as the Spring Street Socialist lot are privatising public housing estates across the city, knowing the private sector is the solution, the answer to massive public housing waiting lists is get rid of public housing, because then we won't need a public housing waiting list. Notice the government is in the process of providing about 1,400 new beds in the privatised prison sector. And that, as far as I could make out, doesn't even include the new juvenile prison whose inmates, we can assume, as avid readers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, would be these black African ne'er-do-wells marauding our city. Well, if we've got a privatised prison system, we have to keep supplying the products to to provide the private compassionate companies with their hard-earned profits. Sort of reverse retail. Normally, we pay to buy the products, but in this case, we pay them and provide them with the products and with the real estate in which to manage the products. Win-win. Just the other morning, Lord Rupert highlighted the problem yet again, first time since the morning before. P1, exclusive teen gang buster, tough new laws to tackle youth crime crisis. Just one point, and we have to look beyond Lord Rupert's responsible reporting to realise this, but figures show that for the past several years, crime rates have been falling, falling. So so, so why do we need 1,400-plus new private prison beds? It's a mystery. Then again, those homeless budgers could march into the town hall, demand their destroyed goods back, and kick up such a fuss they'd be guaranteed getting arrested for trespass and happily land in one of the 1,400 beds and do their bit for the private sector. Again, win-win. Potential lose-lose. The caring business class was reaching for the single malt scotch to settle its nerves, its anger and shock that the ACTU voted to ask the Socialist Party, were it to become the government, to legislate for worker representation on all company boards. Spluttering over his cut crystal whiskey glass, former Business Profits Council Chair and non-worker representative on numerous company boards, Graham Broadley Rich, said worker representation was a moral hazard and, poor Graham gasped, a potential conflict of interest to see yourself as an employee representative or any other representative implying, we assume, that good, caring business class directors like Graham see themselves as representing nothing. We thought it unfair to ask Graham for an explanation, given his delicate condition, at least until he'd downed enough single malt to regather his composure. An employee representative, he battled on bravely, also raised the possibility they would act as 
this is terrible, a conduit to workers, which would conflict with, quote, the sacred principle of absolute confidentiality of boardroom discussions. In other words, heaven forbid, workers might know what they're up to. There were other ways of caring for caring employers to get input from the workforce, including extensive employee surveys and intensive communication with employees. And Graham would know the only lazy, avaricious worker input that matters is the labour input providing the profits, the representing nothing good independent board members chop up between themselves and their shareholders. And look, let's face it, what would workers know about the job they've been doing for years? They need those suits in boardrooms to organise them and tell them how it's done. And workers all appreciate the extensive surveys and intensive communication their caring employers' boardrooms never stop providing. Meaningful communication like, put your backs into it, you lazy bastards! Stevedore, Hatching Plot Sons, epitomised meaningful communications when it used text to communicate to workers that as of that meaningful communication, they were unemployed. And that consideration, saving the workers having to come into work to be told they were unemployed, to be told they had to be sadly let go, exposed just how evil, evil unions are. Forcing the fair work, no longer work choices just looks like a con mission to find the evil union thousands for taking unprotected industrial action over the caring employer's considerate, meaningful communication. The union was lucky, and this is true actually in some ways, because the fair work no longer just looks like ombudsman urged the bench to fine it millions and millions, saying each worker who missed a shift over several days, the number of shifts by the number of individual workers, should each be seen as an individual offence, warranting the maximum penalty, adding up to trillions. Although in dismissing that argument, the bench said the strike was serious enough to warrant a severe fine. Assuming, therefore, there was nothing serious at all about hatching plot sons, sadly letting workers go by text, or sadly letting them go at all for that matter. And imagine the hatching plots they would have had to go through if there'd been a worker representative on the board, forced to plot the sadly having to let goes without the worker rep having a clue. No, it's all too impossible, a moral hazard, a threat to the sacred principle of absolute confidentiality. Now, let's play that fun, fun, fun game, pick the anomaly or pick the contradiction. It goes by both titles, depending what state we're in, that is, geographic state, as opposed to morning after the night before state, and this being Saturday. But anyway, here's the big question. In a rare interview this week, True Blue Aussie's most filthy rich of the filthy rich or near enough to it person, Gina Hardhart. Now, first clue in this very difficult game. Gina came by her fortune, or certainly got one hell of a kickstart, when her dad impregnated her mum. And later when her dad went to the dear baby Jesus, the great Mount Tom Price in the sky, and she inherited all that filthy rich stuff he acquired from the True Blue Aussie public resources. And clue two. We know there's been this expensive court battle, Gina defending a family trust set up by her dear departed dad worth heaps and heaps, with her offspring claiming they have a right to, a share of and control of the heaps and heaps. 
Never let a pile of dollars get between Gina and happy families, making for fun, 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 warm, cuddly Mother's Days down at Gina's. Well, in this interview, Gina... Now, remember clue one. Gina says the offspring don't deserve any of the heaps and heaps because... The children did not pay for those shares or contribute in any significant way. Right, that's the data. Now, and I can see the game isn't easy, but pick the contradiction in Gina's argument. That, that should have you puzzling over it all day. Speaking of logic, finally, the, the bloke who lost the Pakistan election, who took over as leader after his brother, the former big supremo, developed a small problem arising out of a bit of corruption, making it difficult to run a campaign from the prison cell. The bloke who lost said the whole thing was rigged, and here's the logic bit. If I'm saying it was rorted, he looked all sincerity, it shows just how seriously it was rorted. And if I say the week that was is the most listened to radio segment in the whole world, it shows just how seriously the week that was is the most listened to radio segment in the whole world. Listener, good morning. The only, only dream I want, the only, only dream I have, in the morning when I wake up, I feel you in my head. Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've got Chris De Pascali on the phone, and he's going to give us some understanding of what happened at Summerton. Uh, you're part of CAF, the uh, Coalition Against uh, uh, Fascism, uh, Racism and Fascism, and uh, you were all out there at Summerton. Why did you go to Summerton to uh, demonstrate? Can you give our listeners a background? Yeah, sure. So um, we've been planning a protest for a while. Um, when we knew that um, Lauren Southern um, was coming to uh, Australia. And just for a bit of background, she's a Canadian um, alt-right or far-right activist. Um, she um, has a YouTube channel and so on, but she doesn't only do that. She's also someone who's linked up with established far-right groups. For example, there's a group in France called uh, Generation Identitaire, um, and she famously took part in an action with them where they went out into the Mediterranean on a boat and they um, attempted to prevent rescue ships from rescuing drowning migrants to make the point um, that basically uh, all migrant boats should be turned back. So, oh, and, and people was. should and yeah. uh, people should probably realise that this woman is a very pretty, uh, neat, blonde-headed, well-dressed, conservative type, right? Yeah, exactly. So she's a young, she's a twenty-four-year-old uh, young woman. So that's part of the appeal as well that she. 
I guess, is able to tap into um, a slightly different audience. Yes. Um, so when we found out that she was coming, we organised a protest, but we didn't know where it was, and the location was kept secret right up until the day. Um, and we, when we worked out where it was, we basically, uh, yeah, we mobilised to go out to Somerton. And I think it says something as well about, I guess, the success of our campaigns over the past little while um, in that they, the organisers felt like they couldn't secure um, a CBD location um, or a central location. And so they had to ferry their uh, people out to, um, you know, to Somerton. Yeah, it's also interesting, though, that uh, quite clearly the police were very aware of where the event was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, they were definitely aware of it um, and they'd mobilised um, yeah, an enormous amount. I, I'm not sure people who have not been to one of these things realise what the police response is. I spoke to some other people who were there, uh, who went went there because they just find it outrageous that uh, these right-wing speakers who have fascist uh, undertones should be allowed to speak so freely uh, uh, and they wanted to stand there and say, uh, show their displeasure. Uh, when they went there, that she was describing uh, uh, v- various levels of police, so the horses, the uh, special oh, yeah, response definitely. units, the people dressed yeah. up in their gladiatorial outfits. Uh, she spoke yeah. of a friend of hers who was about 65, standing there just looking and having uh, people coming up behind her doing with the batons going, uh, move, 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 and yeah. Uh, yeah. being punched in the back. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's the police response is, is crazy, but, I mean, they had, they had said that in, um, you know, they said they were going to charge her 68 grand for the police response. So, um, you know, we knew that it was going to be a big mobilisation on their part. Um, but that's kind of, you know, um, that's increasingly what, uh, you know, what Victoria Police does. Yeah, well, it's interesting because one of the quotable quotes from the mainstream media was uh, the police uh, fellows talking about how demonstrators were putting their members at risk. What's your response to that? I just find that outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're not the ones who are going in with batons, with shields, um, with pepper spray and all the rest of it. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're going along like we've, We've never gone in armed or anything like that. We go in with banners. We go in with placards. We go in with, you know, chants um, and and megaphones. Um, we certainly don't go in uh, with the intention of causing violence. Um, we've never done that. Um, all we want to do is register uh, to the public um, and to the people going along that um, when fascists, when neo-Nazis, when white supremacists and so on come to Melbourne, there is going to be an anti-racist response to that. Um, and I think that is important to register, and I think it's important. Um, I think it's I think it's great that uh, people came out in defiance of um, you know Victoria Police and came out in defiance, especially of the far right, um, to put that message across all the way in Somerton as well. It's interesting because there's this. Uh, um message that the mainstream media and quite clearly uh, people like Cottrell and the others who represent people like uh, True Blue uh, are trying to represent that there are two types of people, the fascists and then the anti-fascists, and they're exactly the same. Uh, uh, They're trying to create this image of uh, anti-fascist demonstrators as being uh, the uh, uh, violent and uh, aggressive 
uh, in equal measures to fascism and the fascists themselves are dressing up as pretty 24-year-old women with well-cut blonde hair and uh, can't you see that uh, we're well-dressed uh, pretend tradies? Can't you see the difference that we're the good guys and uh, the anti-fascists are the bad guys? It's like a rerunning of history. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it's you, it's such a superficial um, kind of approach to take. Um, and I think it's the types of people who say that sort of thing are the types of people who, you know... Um, have literally no engagement with what's going on. Um, you know, fascists have a an inherently violent worldview. It's a worldview that is based on um, suppressing, um, you know, and oppressing uh, racial minorities, women, um, LGBTI people, and so on. They want to see a world that is divided along those lines. Um, whereas, actually, anti-fascist and anti-racist have a profoundly different worldview. We want to see an end to oppression. We want to see an end to discrimination. Um, we want we want something better than the society that we've got, um, and so to, to say that um, the two are the same, I think it has a it's a total distortion and mischaracterization of where the two groups come from. Um, but similarly, I mean, in terms of tactics and so on, like uh, we we go into we we don't we make no bones about the fact that we're disruptive um, and that we get in the way um, and that we um, you know uh, cause a bit of a ruckus, but we feel like that's what we need to do. And we feel like, as well, anything that anti-fascists do, um, well, I think anything that anti-fascists do is nothing compared to the profound violence that the far right um, uh, perpetrates. Like Lauren Southern, for example, this woman literally chartered a boat to go into the Mediterranean to stop rescue ships from rescuing drowning human beings. And she thinks it's okay for these human beings to drown because they happen to come from Africa, because they come from the Middle East. Well, we think... You know, a couple of hundred anti-fascist protesters blocking a highway at the front of her um, event is, you know, is totally justified in that context. I find it fascinating too that uh, historically, uh, people who are have left-wing politics have been actively um, uh, barred from coming into Australia. <clears throat> yeah. While some these people have no problem coming into Australia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was only a couple of years ago that Palestinian um, activist uh, Bassem Tamimi, um, whose daughter um, Ahed Tamimi has become a worldwide, you know, um, figure of inspiration. Uh, she, I think, was due to be released from um, an Israeli prison um, in in recent uh, days. But um, so her father, Bassem Tamimi, was due to speak at the Marxism conference a couple of years ago um, and had his visa denied at the last minute because of complaints from community groups. Um, because he might stir up trouble. Like, this is a peace activist um, who was barred from coming to the country. And similarly, um, peace activists during uh, the Iraq War and so on were banned from coming to the country. Um, I mean, look, I mean, the thing about that is I don't... And certainly the campaign that I am a part of um, was not calling for Lauren Southern to be banned. I think that um, we enter dangerous territory when we start uh, calling on the Immigration Department, and particularly someone like Peter Sutton, who's at the head of it, um, saying that these people should or shouldn't be able to make decisions about um, who comes into the country. But I think that um, it does speak to the hypocrisy, I think, of um, the Australian state and the Australian Immigration Department. Um, and it shows you where their priorities are as well, that, um, you know, a Palestinian peace activist um, has his visa revoked at the last minute and then a far-right, um, you know, uh, you know, a far-right activist is just, you know, given the welcome mat. So, yeah.
It's, uh, a film has just come out or is just about to be released uh, uh, called Black Klansman, which uh, from America, and of course this is all very pertinent to what's going on in America, uh, and uh, obviously what's going uh, this white supremacy. It, it looks at white supremacy and the effects it has on black Americans and others as well. It draws uh, quite uh, significant. Uh, discussion uh, points to people uh, uh, in general about uh, what's going on in America at the moment. And one of the, because they're talking about clans, the Klan in um, uh, the, in America during the 1960s and a particular um, uh, police operation, uh, uh, some of the rhetoric that I've, I've, I've literally heard at... Uh, I recently heard at the True Blue rally, the uh, Cotterell was talking to his little group of people. The business about his, what he said was um, at the just at, at just outside Parliament building on the uh, in Burke Street on the uh, tram stop. He was talking to his little group of people, and he said, uh, "They say we're, our hearts are full of hate, but we're not full of hate. We're just trying to defend white culture." And this was exactly the same polemic yeah. coming out of this um, the Klan in uh, America during the 1960s and now. This uh, yeah. uh, white culture, what are they talking about? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, because Lauren Southern talks about it as well, um, you know, present, preserving white culture, white culture is under attack. I mean, it's, it's about a narrative that they're building, which is that um, that, that of the poor, um, you know, white um, nation that is being invaded by hordes of migrants, um, you know, uh, you know, in the states, or you know, blacks and so on, um, who are just demanding kind of basic civil you know, civil rights and, and dignities and so on, um, and that this was threatening. Uh, I mean, I think I think you've got to see it's it's about the fact that they see um, their order being threatened. Um, that's the narrative that they're trying to spin. But at the at the heart of it, it's just racism. Um, there is no there is no white culture that's been that's under attack. Um, it, white culture is fine. <laughs> um, white civilization is fine. It's never been doing better. Um, but it's not even white. So, it's it's Western culture they're talking about. Western imperialist yeah. culture, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it, and I think that um, yeah, like it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty um, common narrative among the far right. So even in, for example, in France, and Lauren Southern talks about this as well. A thing called the Great Replacement. Um, which is this um, fanciful idea that um, that the white population is being replaced by hordes of migrants through low fertility rates among whites, through mass immigration and so on. Um, and then, you know, they take it further when they talk about things like white genocide, um, that, you know, for example, in a country like South Africa, which has a black majority, that whites are being systematically killed or something like that. None of this is true. Um, it's all a total lie. It's a total myth. It's a racist myth. Um, but yeah, it's one that um, it's it's part of the narrative. Just as a side issue, uh, uh, the recent uh, decision of the Australian National University not to take funding for that was uh, supposedly to create a department of Western culture, Western civilization, yeah. is actually part of this same polemic, isn't it? Oh, totally. Um, so the the whole Ramsey Centre thing with um, with the Australian National University, um, I mean, that was they they wanted to present it as a culture war. Um, that's that's what they went in with, um, and 
you know, the whole thing was about the fact that, you know, um, especially with ANU, it's got an Islamic centre, it's got an Asian studies centre. Why not a centre for Western civilization? Well, the first thing to say is that there is already, there are already degrees offered in Western civilization at every single university. It's called the humanities department. Um, <laughs> there are degrees in history, um, you know, literature, um, you know, European language studies. Like there is, there are entire disciplines um, across every university dedicated to learning about Western civilization. So it's not as though this is unrepresented or something on university campuses. But the second thing is that they try to present this thing as a culture war. But it's not, a, it's not about a culture war. It's about the fact that um, a rich philanthropist left $3 billion um, to, you know, to a university to design his own degree. Basically, there's this guy from beyond the grave who was calling the shots about what can and can't be put into this degree. Um, that's going to be, and, and the thing about it is it's going to be pro-Western civilization. That's what Tony Abbott said. You know, what he's um, talking about imperialism. It, it's about yeah, exactly. uh, yeah t- t- doing a tick box for imperialism. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, that's so you can see. I think there's a, there is a connection between um, the things that say someone like the True Blue Crew might say about defending white culture, right up through to the top, that someone like Tony Abbott or John Howard might say on the board of this prestigious, you know, university, um, you know, um, this university body um, that's you know. Three billion dollars attached to it, so there is a continuity between those things. Just as, just like there's a continuity between um, Lauren Southern, uh, you know, going out into the Mediterranean and uh, attempting to turn back migrant boats, and the official Australian government policy um, of of the, you know, um, of turning back, um, you know, refugee boats. So there's a, there's a, I think there's a thread that you can that you can find there. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, it's a very weird sort of white supremacy thing that's uh, uh, trying to pervade uh, all of the uh, countries that are aligned to America. That's how it seems to me. The uh, what, Is there anything come out of Summerton that, uh, for your group that uh, you want to yeah. tell us about? Yeah, so look, the next... Um, the next event that we've got, I mean, the thing to say firstly was it was a great demo um, and a lot of people enjoyed it um, and it was great to see 200 people um, make their way to Summerton to take part. Um, and so the next thing that we've got coming up is on September 7th, Nigel Farage, who's the former head of UKIP, is coming um, on a speaking tour. Oh, my um, goodness. We, 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 we just can't get enough of them. I know. I know. They, um, they're, you know, they're flooding our shores um, and... Yeah, they'll be uh, coming. Uh, he'll be coming on September the seventh, um, and so you know, I'd urge people to um, you know get involved, like our Facebook page, come along to our meetings, take part in the activity, and so on. And most importantly, yeah, come to the demo because I think it's more important than ever that we build um, a strong, um, you know, diverse, uh, resilient uh, anti-fascist movement here. It's obvious there's a lot of money behind these people for them to be creating uh, a, a speak. What is effectively a speaking tour? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's huge money involved, but also they get a lot of money out of it as well. Um, so that's one of the big draw cards I think for them is that um, you know Lauren Southern was charging up to seven hundred and fifty dollars for a ticket. Um, How many people went? Um, I think eight hundred went. And they paid seven hundred dollars to go there. Wow. Not all of them did, but I mean some of them did. Yeah. So yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Thanks very yeah. much for talking to us, Chris, and we'll keep that's alert okay. to what's going on. No worries. Thanks for having me. No worries. And that's the end of uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Thanks for your company.
Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. I should probably tell you that uh, we uh, had Ros Ward uh, talking about Marx. We uh, went to the uh, book launch of uh, Lisa Belair's uh, poetry, Aboriginal Country. If you want to get a copy of it, you can go online to uh, UWAP, that's the uh, University of Western Australian Poetry, uh, .uwa.edu.au. Just go to uh, the UWAP website and look up uh, Aboriginal Country and you'll be able to buy it. It costs about $23 online. Uh, and uh, we then went to This Is The Week That Was and then we found out what really happened at Summerton when the uh, right-wing decided to have a little expensive party. Okay, as I said, Asia Pacific coming up now, Currents, and we're going to go out with the Ruby Hunter number. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.